Hey friends, I'm Renee. And I'm Anna. And you're listening to Fanger Happy Hour. Hello, friends. We are here to talk about some feedback and updates. And then we're going to discuss the Clark Awards. And then Anna dubconned me into reading The Gentleman's Guide to Vice and Virtue. I wouldn't put it exactly like that. She made hard eyes at me a whole lot. I'm so sick. I'll have to apologize in advance. I might say things I'll regret. And we also have an interview that Anna did with Anne Leckie. Yes. It was great. I'm so excited about this interview, Anna. It is the one where she will answer once and for all the cake or pie question. This will be settled in a way that no one will predict. And after that, you're going to come back to us and we're going to give you some recommendations. I promise you they will not have anything to do with cake or pie. Maybe. Time for feedback and updates. Over on Tumblr a few weeks ago, Coffee Cup and Corgi wrote a post about the book you recommended when Dimple met Rishi. You really liked it a lot and you recommended it here. Well, they read it and they were just like, eh. But they did provide an alternate rec. They said, if you're intrigued by the book's premise, Indian-American protagonists navigating the dissonance between Indian culture and mainstream American culture, between parental expectations and individual relationship and career goals, I recommend Rishi Reddy's Karma and Other Stories instead, in particular her story, The Validity of Love. So since we're big on recommendations here, I thought it would be good to pull that out and recommend it in case people who happen to read When Dimple Met Rishi and don't like it, and but still want the same kind of thing, they could try this. I know people who have read that book and have come away like either super in love with it or the exact opposite. So maybe it's one of those books. Are you going to read it? I think I might when my library gets it, I think. And recently, Susan was transcribing some of our episodes, and as she transcribes episodes, she will give commentary on our episodes on Twitter, and she'll add us if you want to read, like, really funny commentary about our transcriptionist commenting on our transcripts. Susan is really fun to follow. And one of the tweets that she sent us was, Googling Ponfar doesn't sound safe. Yeah, because it sounds like Star. I find all her commentary super funny. I actually do agree with you on that. And I was going to recommend people follow her on Twitter too, especially when she is transcribing us. Well, not, not especially because she's awesome at all times. I agree. And the last update we have, did you guys know that right now on the internet, our very own Anna is running a Kickstarter for the book smugglers? Guys, it's the most nerve wracking thing ever. Yes, it's our first ever Kickstarter that the Book Smugglers are running to raise funds for our next season of short stories to be able to pay more to the writers whose work we acquire to get paid contributors to the blog so that we can grow and expand. You know, everything goes towards our world domination plans, as you all know. And if you like what we do, if you like what we have produced so far, your contribution would be very welcome. And there are really cool rewards too. And if you can't contribute right now, it always, always helps in the current internet media environment when you signal boost people's requests like this. Exactly. If you see a tweet go by, give them a retweet. It really, really, really helps out. And thank you. The Arthur C. Clarke Award is a British award given for the best science fiction novel published in the United Kingdom during the previous year. It's named after Arthur C. Clarke, who gave a grant to establish the award in 1987. The book is chosen by a jury. This is one of the genres and the UK's most prestigious science fiction prize. That's a direct quote. Most people know about the Clarke Award because a few years ago there was a big hubbub 
online because the entire shortlist was men. Yep. This year, the drama centered around the fact that a group of fans that called themselves the Shadow Clark launched their own version of the jury. Yeah, but I think it went a little beyond that because it was supported by an university here in Cambridge, Anglia Ruskin University, which provided them the place and the website where to post a discussion. So I think it goes a little beyond fan discussion into more of an academic discussion. I would agree. It was a fan academic discussion. Yeah. Which is different than a fan group discussion. To me, it had kind of like um, an appearance of an experiment run by the university. I could be wrong, but that's the appearance that, that that's how it, it appears to me. And they had the cutest name. Did they? Because they shortened the Shadow Clark to Shark. <laughs> I loved it. I was so <laughs> tickled. It tickled me to death. I was like, this is the cutest thing. Any publisher can submit a novel to the Clark Award. I assume as long as it's published in the UK. The Clark Award actually publishes the long list of the novels they received for transparency. And then the jury will, from that long list, decide on a short list. I'm so out of touch with, like, juried awards. I've been buried in the Hugo so long, I'm like, what? A panel? What? And then they select the winner. And from what I understand, that's exactly what the Shadow Clark did, too. First, they came up with their own long list. But they then also read the official shortlist from the Clark and wrote reviews about it. The Clark Award itself, the shortlist this year, was A Closed and Common Orbit by Becky Chambers, published by Hotter and Stoughton. Non-Fox Gambit by Yoon Ha Lee, published by Solaris. After Atlas by Emma Newman, published by Rock. Occupy Me by Trisha Sullivan, published by Golans. Central Station by Lavi Tidhar, published by PS Publishing. And the winner of the Clark Award for 2017, The Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead, published by Fleet. I was really happy with this shortlist when I saw it because I thought it touched on a lot of the different groups we have in science fiction publishing right now. Yes, different kinds of science fiction. From all across the spectrum. I mean, I haven't read Occupy Me in Central Station or the Underground Railroad, but I understand what you mean. For example, A Close and Common Orbit and Nine Fox Gamage, which are the two that I read, they have things in common, but they are very disparate books. The Shadow Clark came up with their own shortlist. Their shortlist was The Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead, Central Station by Lavi Tidhar, The Arrival of Mrs. by Aaliyah Whiteley, A Field Guide to Reality by Joanna Cavina, Infinite Ground by Martin Macinez, and The Power by Naomi Alderman. Ooh, I've got a copy of that. I know. I want to read it, too, because it sounded really good. The Shadow Clark chose The Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead as well. So we really need to read this book. I agree. We really need to read this book. So I remember when the Shadow Clark launched, I read like what it was about. And I was like, oh, this is probably not for me. And I kept trying to engage with their criticism because I really liked some of the things they wrote. But I really disliked their attitude toward other fans. Toward the end of the project, I got really upset because I had grown adults telling me, another grown adult, that I didn't actually like the books that I liked. That's what it felt like. And I'm not the only one who felt that way. And a lot of my feelings about the Shadow Clark were compounded by the fact that their type of engagement leaves me feeling like I felt when I first went to university and I didn't have any critical analysis skills and I didn't know how to engage with criticism and nobody wanted to help me. And I just felt stupid and left behind. My readings of things were always wrong. My professors would single me out in class to tell me how the way that I interpreted something or the way that I read something was inaccurate. I didn't want to be told how to read a book. I didn't want to be told that things I loved were trash just because the person reading them was smarter than I was or more educated than I was. That is literally the feeling that I got from the Shadow Clark. I just don't know what's good. Or worse, I do know what's good and I'm only saying that I like something because... I want to verbally fillet the publisher or the author. When they talked about the books themselves, they were fine. But as soon as they got into how other people were reacting and talking about and loving some of these books, they became every single professor I had that treated me like I was stupid. And I know I reacted badly to them because of it. 
because it was like being thrown back to that place where I felt like I would never be good enough. I would never be smart enough. I would never be educated enough to understand where they were coming from, to understand the points that they wanted me to understand. Although I followed some of the critics, other critics I had to step back from, I don't know how you want to make people love books if this is the way you want them to love books. Okay, my reading of The Shadow Clark is less about loving books and more about appreciating them for their aesthetics and by elevating them. The problem with that is that whose idea of what makes a book elevated or good is not up for discussion. Whatever I read, reviews and blog posts, it appears to me as an approach of objectivity that can't and won't exist in literature in any shape or form. It's a complicated discussion. I thought from an experiment point of view, it was interesting. It sounded like an ex exciting and interesting experiment. I'm not sure, like you, that it's for me because I don't think our... I wanted to say taste, but I think it goes beyond taste. It goes beyond taste for me. Yeah, our approach to literature is different. I can't engage with literature in that way anymore. The Clark Award itself has been changing a whole lot the last few years. They had that huge blow-up about the all-male shortlist. And since that blow-up, it feels like the Clark has started to shift more toward more conventionally popular books. I don't want to say commercial books, because a lot of the books on the shortlist are doing okay, but I can walk into my local Barnes Noble and I can't find a copy of them. Right. Although the Clark is moving toward like popular fiction inside the community... Going back to what I said before about how the Clark shortlist is sampling types of literature across the field, I really do think it's a good representation of books. Like there is space enough to have popular fiction, small press fiction, quote unquote literary fiction, which I guess is where the Underground Railroad would fit. I put the Underground Railroad into the like Station Eleven category. Which I think also won the Clark. So ultimately, I'm really happy that Shadow Clark brought the Clark Award out so more people could see it and see what it was trying to do. And so they could show what they think that the award should do. Because I do think that as fans and members of a set of disparate communities that like and read books, we should be looking at the awards that go out and assessing them. So I'm glad that happened. I also think that The Shadow Clark only really created a discussion space for certain types of educated science fiction fans. Would you call it an elitist award or an elitist shadow award? No, I don't think I would. I don't think there's anything elitist about being educated. But I also think that once you're educated, you have to realize that education takes time and resources and energy that a lot of people might not have. Do to circumstances beyond their control. Yes. Do we want there to be other shadow juries for other awards? Uh, no. Let me rephrase that. I don't think I care. I think if other people want to do it, fine, whatever. I wouldn't follow it, I don't think. Not even if it was for your favorite, the Hugo Award? I don't care. Maybe a Shadow Locus Award where we get to have actual YA entries in their YA category. How about you? Do you want there to be other shadow awards? I think I would want more shadow awards that were more accessible to people who were at different levels of knowledge about the field, about culture, so more people could take part. Anyway, we should really read the Underground Fray World. Space Bees, since Anna apparently doesn't care about shadow juries. How do you feel about shadow juries, Space Bees? I want to know. How do you feel about the Clark Award and what do you think of the winner this year. If you have thoughts on the Underground Railroad, which Anna and I will apparently read soon, we would like to hear about it. The Gentleman's Guide to Vice and Virtue by Mackenzie Lee was published in June of 2017 by Catherine Teagan Books and tells the story of Henry Monty Montague, who is a peer of the realm, but is struggling a little bit. 
because of the constant disapproval of his father. Monty is a bit of a rake, spending his nights gambling, drinking, or banging some ladies or some dudes. The book begins with Monty and his friend Percy and his sister going on his grand tour of Europe and tells the story of all the adventures they have crossing the continent. Anna, you recommended this book, and then I read it. Oh my god. I thought it was delightful. I loved it. It's probably going to be on my top 10 this year. Okay, go on. Say it. What did you think of it? Just, just cut to the chase. Do it. I liked this book, but I only liked it. Okay. This is a story about mental illness, abuse, um, the complicated nature of family, choosing to be a better person, race. Intersectional privilege. This is a Regency YA novel that is one part adventure, one part misery, one part romance. Is that a good description? It is a good description. It hides seriousness behind humor. When you start reading the book, it reads as something light, like the facade that Monty wears, right? Until it starts to peel off everything that he's hiding, the pain that there is for him. But at the same time, it's about him confronting his own privilege as a white man that is rich and healthy. So Monty is going on his grand tour with his best friend, Percy, who is biracial. And his younger sister, Felicity, who wants to study medicine and be a doctor, even though women can't do that. The book also deals with her limitations. It deals with the limitations of Monty and Percy's friendship. There are thieves and there are pirates. There's magic. Random. I don't even think of this as like a fantasy novel. But it is. It is, but it's not. To me, the magical element was the only dissonance within the book. Yeah, I would agree. Which is complicated because it's the thrust of the main plot. But it could have been just, well, these people think they're going after a magical object, but of course magic doesn't exist and they don't find it. But then they actually do find a magical object. It was an interesting part of a novel about social issues. In my review, I wrote that this could be the way, because if magic exists, then it, it, al it is also possible to believe that these characters will find happiness. Yeah, I agree. Even though it was a little bit jarring, it was actually maybe needed to help me believe. You went into this novel going, it was fun, it was funny, it dealt with serious issues, but it was kind of lighthearted. But for me, this novel was one misery after another to the end of the book. I was like, is anything ever going to go right for these poor kids? Everything goes wrong. They're always in disagreement. They're almost always fighting with each other. They seem miserable the entire time. I was confused. I'm like, what am I missing here that everybody else is seeing as like a good, fun romp across Europe? That's so fascinating. Right? I know it has to just be me because multiple people have come and been like, this is so much fun. So I'm confused, Anna. I'm really confused. Name all the fun parts without spoilers that you found, that you liked. Well, I guess their interactions with each other and the way that Monty sees the world and narrates what's happening to him. Because, of course, everything that's happening to them is really serious and he lets, he lets in sometimes that, oh my god, I am a coward and I just need to hide. This is why I said it's seriousness behind the tone. It's the narrative that made it fun to me. Right, where from the very beginning, I was like, this kid needs some serious therapy. His mask that he wears, which is very obvious from the very beginning of the novel, uh, and his behaviors that stem from his family life, I was just like, this kid is fucked up. So I had a lot of trouble finding the humor, I guess, in some of his commentary. Because to me, his commentary, while it's clever, it's kind of like this bleak type of clever. And I had a lot of trouble getting past it for the first half of the book. I'm like, this kid needs help. This is awful. Somebody give this kid a hug. But I had the same reaction. I, I kept wanting to hug him too. And also sometimes just give him a good shake because he was being so obtuse. But I wonder, because this is a romance novel. And I've read so many romance novels that are light and funny, but they also feature this deeply scarred Regency rake character. And I wonder if it's just some, it's something that is so familiar to me that I know that there will be a moment of reckoning 
that I can still see the fun in it whilst knowing the deep seriousness that is behind and that it's coming. You know the book that would have been more fun for me? It would have been if this book had a companion novel written with the same journey, but from Felicity's perspective. It's the second book. Is that really going to happen? Yes. I'm excited. It's the lady's guide to piracy and and medicine or something. I'm there, 100%. I know. I'm so there, too. I loved Felicity. She was a super great character. To me, she read asexual. I'm very picky with Anna. I'm very picky. I know. Well, me, the ace person, did not see that. But I do not stand in the way of anybody else's reading of a character. She says at one point that she doesn't feel like that towards people. So that was this one moment where I thought they might address that in the second book. She is using the guy that she is making out with. With those circumstances, I'm just not inclined to say yes. Like, this is a canon fact. Unless the sequel comes out and deals with it explicitly. Right, fair enough. But I am not grand high asexual. If other people who are ace want to go, yeah, heck yeah, she is super ace. Go right ahead. Have a great time. I endorse your beliefs. Far be it from me to generalize anything for other ace people. I've learned from my mistakes, Anna. I've learned from them. But it would be really cool if in the second book she was. So it's time for spoiler tag. Please check our show notes for the spoiler tag times. Anna, there was a lot of abuse in this book. Yes. It was a whole lot that I didn't expect. I thought, okay, the dad's abusive. But also, um, he gets punched around a lot and emotionally abused by other people. And, and I think Percy as well, with the way that he's treated with his mental illness. Percy lies to him about his health because he thinks... Monty is going to react a certain way when he finds out that Percy has epilepsy. And then Monty acts that way, just like Percy thought he would. But I'm like, did you ever think that maybe he might have reacted differently if he had learned about it when you guys were penniless on the road away from home under extreme stress? Do you ever think that if you just set him down and explained it in a calm location where you guys weren't being chased by killers? They might have gone differently, sir. Did you give that a thought? No? Okay. Monty doesn't react well to Percy's epilepsy. Monty doesn't react well to anything. Percy doesn't react very well to Monty's mental illness. Both things at that time that were probably very misunderstood. So I can see why it happens. But oh my god, Anna, it was awful. Oh. And what I meant when I said that this book was like one misery to another, they start out on this trip... The first thing that happens is the trip is ruined by some chaperone who creates this really oppressive atmosphere. The thing at, in Paris happens, and, Mo- and Monty is a dickhead and steals something that gets them in trouble. I just went through this book saying, Monty, no! And so they have to leave Paris in shame. Ro- then they get robbed by thieves looking for the thing that Monty stole, which they don't realize. They lose their chaperone and all their money. They have to live on the road. Then they go to where their chaperone is, take more money, but then go away from their chaperone again, alone, on the road to Spain. When they get there, more bad things continue to happen. These kids, I love them so much, though. I mean, they're great characters. I just wanted to hug them all. The things they go through are yikes. So the whole plot of this book is Monty steals this box that has a code. Cryptographs. It's a little object that you can spin and put in the code and it'll unlock and drop out a vial or a note. Inside the stolen cryptogrammy thing that Monty takes from Paris and is chased across the continent for, there is a key that will unlock the crypt of a woman who is a zombie? Yeah, there's something to do with alchemy and the elixir of life. And they are looking to find a cure for Percy's epilepsy. And so they think that this lady's heart, because apparently she's dead, but her heart's still beating. I didn't really understand what was happening, Anna, I'll be honest. The meat of her heart contains this cure. Monty wants it because Percy can get better and then he won't have to go into an institution. There's a lot going on in this novel, Anna. It's so much fun, Renee. You're talking about it. I'm just remembering how much fun it was. And then Monty concocts a plan that will throw him in jail and he gets punched. They end up stowing away on a boat and they get caught by pirates who are actually not pirates but escaped slaves. Which was a super great plot. It's kind of like a heist cross with a kidnapping. Yeah. 
all these things that happen are just like constant miseries. I feel so bad for these kids. Can't they just have a break? Okay, so the end then. It all ends well for them. Percy and Monty just decide to live off their lives in a beautiful Greek island because they are in love with each other. Although their romance for me, unfortunately, fails my five-minute test. Are you sure you liked this book? Because I'm getting a certain vibe from you. If your interpersonal conflict can be resolved by sitting down and talking for five minutes and just using adult words, I find your interpersonal drama boring. And they could have definitely sat down and had a five-minute discussion without storming off or getting mad about their feelings and resolved all their little romance drama. But that would mean that Monty was a much more grown-up character than he actually is at the beginning of the novel. Monty's just not there yet. Plus, he grows up learning that being bisexual and like boys is a really bad thing. So maybe he doesn't expect Percy to actually be like him. But he knows he is because they kiss in wherever they are. Yeah, at one point, yes. It was very hot. And then at the end, when they have that ridiculous fight and Percy's like, no, I can't, I can't see you for a while and storms off. I'm like, no, this could be solved in five minutes. What the hell? That's the part that failed for me. Monty already knows how Percy feels at that moment. Percy knows how Monty feels. So five minute conversation without storming off, without acting like a child, which I, I get that they are children, but they're making a lot of adult decisions. So why can't this be another adult decision that they make? And I understand what happened. The plot needed Monty to be all alone. So he got kidnapped by the evil Duke who wants the elixir of life for himself. That's fine. And then I also had a problem with him getting hurt. I just have feelings, you know. And they seem like really bad feelings. It's a fun book. You just said it wasn't fun at all for you. It's not fun for me, no, because I went through this book like going, oh my god, this character is miserable. And it's very obvious he's miserable. And everybody around him is also miserable because the world is miserable. But it's a fun book if you like pirate adventures and mysteries and very, very out of place magic. Anna is so dubious right now. I loved it. I really, really did. I think maybe my feelings are complicated, but the fact that every time Monty talked about his dad or we had to relive one of his scenes with his dad, I... I should have thought of that. Basically, I was Monty going through this book. He was so miserable, so I was miserable because I knew exactly what he was going through. I'm so sorry. So in this, in this relationship between the two of us, I am Monty, the clueless one. Hey, listeners, uh, in this book, just so you know, Monty oftentimes talks about how his dad will beat the shit out of him for liking boys being bisexual and won't let him cover his face, won't let him protect himself. Like, imagine baby Renee in that same situation. Wink. I over-identified with Monty in this book. So this is a failure of recommendation on my part. I'm so sorry. We are giving, we are giving myself minus space bees. No, we're not. You cannot give minus space views. And no, it's not because I knew going in that it was there because you told me. So I just think it's a very visceral novel. It does not pull its punches. When we say that it's got a lot of serious stuff going on behind the scenes, it's all incredibly subtle and it sneaks up on you. But I do think that the relationships in this book are excellent. I really do like them. I love Felicity so much. I love the pirates. So it's about the pirates, the next book. The next book is like definitely more of my alley. And also I liked the reveal at the end. Monty finds out that his dad ruined a woman and then ran off and left her. And so him and his sister are probably not even legitimate children. In my head, Monty and Percy will be able to sustain their lifestyle by blackmailing his father. I hope so. That would be sweet justice. Because I really cannot see Monty actually working. I can see Percy becoming an excellent violinist. Maybe then they'll be enough to sustain them both. Yeah, okay. And then they're going to make friends with pirates, so they'll get good deals on everything. Yes, okay, you are right. Percy can totally make enough money so that... They never have to go back to England. Yeah, because I worry about that. Also, I thought it was interesting that Felicity didn't understand Monty's sexuality. She didn't get it. She thought it was wrong. And I thought that was like a really nice touch. Not everybody is going to go, oh, well, okay, sure. Yes, I agree. Some people are going to have a learning curve, and I thought that was a really nice touch. No, that's true. The other thing is that Monty goes through a process of understanding that he had a certain level of privilege for being white, for being a guy, and for being rich. 
And he still had moments of reckoning with both Felicity and Percy throughout the novel. But in the end, he wasn't still like completely woke. I thought that was very realistic too. Agreed. Okay, Anna, how many Space Beasts are you giving this novel? I'll give it four. I'm giving it three, which I think is fair. I don't think it's a bad book. And I think if, if you like Regency adventure, if you like Regency romance, you should definitely check it out. It also has like bonus rando magic in it. If you need your Regency novels to have fantasy in them. Dear Space Bees, have you read The Gentleman's Guide to Vice and Virtue? If you have, please let us know what you think about it. A few weeks ago, Anna got to sit down with none other than Anne Leckie. It was super great. Through some very determined training, I got her to record the interview for us to air on our show. My microphone was my phone, and I actually carried tea towels from home to make soundproof environment. Well, we did what we could. Renee is very proud of me. I am. I'm very proud of her makeshift recording studio. At Orbit Towers in the UK, in London. And Anne Lincoln was very nice to let us air this, and we thank her very much. We totally want her to be able to come on our show soon. Hi, Anne Lincoln, come on our show. Then you can talk to Renee, too. I gave Anna some questions to ask. Not only did she ask them, she started heavy. She went in from the very beginning. Everybody, enjoy Anna's interview with Anne Lincoln, author of the upcoming book, Provenance. Hello, this is Anna from Girl Happy Hour, and I am interviewing Anne Leckie today. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. This is wonderful. It's, it's such a great opportunity. Thank you so much. I'm sure that Renee is on the other side, just like freaking out that she could not be here. Well, we met, though. I remember she came to a signing of mine in St. Louis. So oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I remember that, too. That's cool. I have a few questions for you. One of them is um, there is a continuing issue, especially for women writers, for reviewers and critics to contextualize the work by comparing it to men who write science fiction. They assume that the woman in question has read them, has written a book with inspiration from their male writer's work, even if they've never touched his stories or books. How do we push back against this trend? I'm not 100% sure, but I know exactly, yeah. And I, and I think I've said before in other places, although it's a huge compliment for my work to be compared to Banks, for instance, tremendous compliment, I had not read Banks. Cherry is who I would compare myself if I would be so presumptuous, right, as to compare myself. And it's interesting to me that it's always Banks. And the best pushback I can do is to just keep saying, no, Cherry, no, Cherry, no, Cherry, no, Cherry. Andre Norton, CJ Cherry. And, uh, and I don't know any other way to push back on that than just to keep saying over and over again. It's a question of visibility, isn't it? The more you talk about, the more people has to pay attention. I certainly hope so, because sometimes it seems as though women just keep dropping out of the conversation. Like the 70s were an amazing decade for women science fiction writers, and people were talking about it. And then the 80s come along, and it's all, oh, the 70s was so dreary, nothing important happened, and now we're having great stuff. Then recently, it's been oh, look at all these women. Isn't this new and exciting? And you're like, the 70s? The 70s, right? So, so it's um, repetition, the 70s. Right. 70s, the 70s. And cherry. cherry yes, cherry. and, and I've, I've kind of become one of the, you know, you make a list of 20 great space operas and you've got to have one woman on it and very often it'll be You're me. the token. Yeah, and oh, no. on the one hand, yeah, I'm glad my list, my, my book is on your list of 20 great space operas, right? That's awesome. Yeah. How come Bujold's not there? Mm. How come CJ Cherry isn't there? How come, yeah. Kate Elliott as well. Kate, El- Elliot. Kate Elliott is somebody who does not get any kind of critical no, attention. No, I just, I, it's unbelievable to us. Like, we at Finger Happy Hour just love her books to bit. We love her as a person. She's just so smart. She, she writes really smart science fiction and fantasy as yes. well. Her Jaren novels are kind of like science fiction. And, then, and it's unbelievable that she's not... She doesn't get the attention. Yeah. It's, and it's weird that way, right? It's it just is. one of those things... And there are, guys, there are guys who write fabulous things that don't get to have that attention, but I think there are a lot more women writers who aren't getting that, right? Yes. Uh, and, I, and like I said, I don't know what to do except to just keep saying, 
look at these women writers, look at these women writers, look at these women writers, and just say it over, over and, and over, over again. again. Yeah. Until it changes and it becomes part of the conversation. Exactly. Yeah. What tropes or genres would you love to see take off in science fiction oh. and fantasy? I don't know. I always kind of enjoy the surprise of a thing that comes up and, and I'm like, oh, that was a thing a while ago and I haven't seen a long time and it's cool to see it back. Or, oh, I never would have thought of that. So I'm not sure. Obviously, I'm super interested in AIs. Yes. Right? That's a thing that I like. Obviously, I really enjoy adventure space opera. That's a thing that I like. Uh, and I've been really glad that over the past several years, that's sort of come back into vogue. While I was writing the trilogy, while I was writing the first book, I sort of despaired of ever selling it because it didn't seem to me like it was very much like the stuff that was being sold. And now that's sort of changing. I'm seeing a lot more things that I feel like are in a similar vein, even though I know very often they were not written in response to my books. It's not like they saw Ancillary Justice and said, oh, now we're going to write this. They were already working on it. So it's like a lot of us, there was something in the air, right? We were all thinking in that direction, yeah. which is kind of cool. I think Yoon Ha Lee, I think he sometimes gets kind of annoyed at the number of people who say, well, obviously he read Anne Leckie. Actually, right. he has read my books, but he had not read them before he wrote, wrote Nine of Fox Nine Gambit. Fox Gambit. Yeah. So my books did not influence his books. But they do have some really cool similarities, yeah. and I, I just love I love those books. Well, I sometimes do that on purpose. So, for example, I read The Collapsing Empire by John Scott. I haven't read that out, yet. And it came out just this year, and I thought it was fabulous. And I said, oh, it's just like and like is Ancillary, just because I want to take the book written by a man and compare it to you. Yes, yes. So, I don't mind that. I don't mind that. But poor Because Yoon sometimes it's just really to, the other one. Yeah. But I bet he was writing that book for a while as he well. He was. Obviously. He was writing it for but a while. I sometimes like to, to just like do that thing. Yes, right? absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. But I, I but also... But it's a really big book too. It's always... It's so collapsing empire. I, yeah. I'm looking forward to that. I haven't it's read really it yet. It's really cool, yeah. But yeah, you're absolutely right because so often it's the other way around, yeah. isn't it? So, so far in your career, what's been one of your favorite moments? Oh, God, there have been a lot. There, because I had such an amazing first year of the novel. But my first short fiction sale was amazing, right? And actually, you know who bought my first short story, science fiction short story? John Scalzi ah. for that special edition of Subterranean Magazine. Right, okay. Um, yeah, so he gave me my first sale. But the whole novel, the whole Ancillary Justice, was just one amazing thing after another. And then the awards were, like, incredible and awesome. And then people started writing fan fiction. Do you know there's, there's like, 150 pieces of fan fiction That's on AO3. amazing. I saw, like, a video, a fun, a fun <gasps> trailer. Isn't that amazing? That is just so cool. I love that one. It's, it's yeah. incredible. Incredible! I sent a link to to Nausea just yeah. last night because we were talking about it. Yeah. That, that, That's as good as a freaking people. I actually people thought, war. wow, Orbit really did a good work with that. And then I saw it's a no, fitter. it's a bitter. It's, it's, it's so a bitter. Cool. Yeah. And they just do well. They did the Starship video. You know the Nicki Minaj. No. You I haven't seen the All Phantoms? It's fabulous. It's no, fabulous. I did not see that So one. if you go onto YouTube and you type in uh, Starship's fandom vid or whatever, it's little snippets from like all kinds of science fiction movies and television with uh, Nicki Minaj's Starships, and it's a fabulous video. I don't follow vidding fandom, yeah. but somebody said, oh, this video is fabulous, and I went and watched it, and it's amazing. And it's the same vidder who did that amazing trailer for okay. Ancillary Justice. They're obviously super talented and super skilled that's amazing okay. um and so that's that. incredible like what can top that right and then there's uh, i actually keep a pinterest board of fan art all the fan art is so amazing and that's all like people that love your books right, right? because isn't that i mean that's like the ultimate dream is that because you write the thing and you enjoy writing it and you're going to write it no matter what but to have other people respond and say, oh, this really grabbed me, this really engaged me, this meant so much to me that I had to draw a picture of the characters. And it just gives more life, too, like, because it continues beyond the books, and it's just, it's, it's out there, and it's just people continuing. Exactly. Right? It's, it's the it's most just, amazing thing. It just thing. keeps on. It, it's the most amazing thing. It's just incredible. And that is fully as good as, if not better than, the awards. That's it's fantastic. wonderful, yeah. yeah. And I, I just, I have the best readers. I have the best readers in the world, so. It's because your books are the best. So. <laughs> <laughs> Moving away from cool things and going to the current political trash oh, fire God. that's happening in America, 
Um, at Finger Happy Hour, we always recommend people to get sleep, get plenty of water, and then call their reps. Oh, yes, please. What is your self-care routine? I have to monitor my Twitter usage because lately, Twitter, you go on Twitter and it's like, the world is on fire because the U.S. is on fire. The U.S. is like one continuous dumpster fire right now. You do need, if you can, to contact representatives, folks who are U.S. citizens. Uh, it's super important, but that's also super stressful. Uh, and so I kind of have to, you know, monitor how much time I'm doing this. Okay, I've, I've done this. I've sent the email. I've made the phone call. I've stood in front of my senator's office a, one day this week. Wow. So the rest of the week, because I've done that a bunch, actually. I have a, a Republican senator. Okay. One, Missouri has one Republican and one Democratic senator. I've done the standing out in front of my Republican senator's local office several times. Uh, and so I say, well, I ration it out. I did my thing today. I did my thing this week. And it, it covered all of this week. So now I know there's still a trash fire going on, but I have to step back and live my life. I have to write my book and I have to take care of my family and get my sleep. And then I will think about that tomorrow. Okay. Yeah. Which is fair enough. Yeah. Uh, at least they killed the skinny. For the moment. That was, yeah, for the that moment. was beautiful. I woke up yesterday here and it had just happened. Um, the vote had just ended and I was like, oh, it's so good sometimes to just wake up and something good Although, I mean, as this as being something good, like we didn't die, right? Uh, yeah. Rather than something like right. it actually just, good, we're yeah. all like, hooray, we're not dying, you yeah. know? And of course, then as soon as you get happy, something horrible happens. And I think the conversation around that repeal vote as well is kind of like a little, little bit weird because Joe McCain has been oh, hailed been... as hero, whereas the two... and Murkowski have, have been, been voting no the whole time. All the time. And then nobody talks about them. That's bullshit. And they say, oh, and it's John McCain who rescued us from, hello, Collins and Murkowski. Yeah, and all the 48 Democrats, too, of course. Need to keep talking about we it. Keep talking just like about we need to keep talking about it in science fiction and fantasy because one feeds into the other and it's just exactly. kind of like the same conversation, isn't it? Yes. Mm -hmm. And now that we talked about that, we will move to the silly question. There is an ongoing conversation that we have been having at Fangirl Happy Hour, which is a very important conversation and would love your take on it. Is cheesecake a cake or a pie? It's not a question I've considered before, but for instance, I am a hard I am of the belief that a hot dog is in fact a sandwich. Having said that someone said this the other day that a hot dog is a taco. Well a taco is a sandwich. And a hot dog, it, I, I would buy that. A hot dog is a kind of taco. It's more related to a taco than a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Okay. But a taco is also a kind of sandwich, right? Okay. So you can already see that I don't like to draw lines. I like to put things together and see how they're related rather than see how they're different. Okay. So I would also argue that pie is a sandwich. What? Pie is a sandwich. Like a Pop-Tart, that's a kind of sandwich. It's also a kind of pie, okay. right? Because you've got your crust and yes. your crust. The crust is bread. It's flour and, and you know, uh, flour and fat. Oh, my right? God. Okay. It's bread. Yes. So a pie is a kind of sandwich. I did not see that coming. A cake, depending on what kind of cake it is, could also be a kind of sandwich. A layer cake with frosting in the middle a is cake? a kind of sandwich. Because it's, in, it's enclosed in something. Right. Because, uh, once again, cake is flour and egg and, you know, water yeah. and fat. Uh, and it's the difference between cake and bread is very, uh, very much a technicality. We know it's one of those. It's like science fiction and fantasy. We know it when we see it. That's cake and that's bread. Right. But okay. they're very much the same kind of thing. They're just made with slightly different proportions, right? Okay, yeah. Depending on the kind of cake, you could argue that the cake is a sandwich. Now, just a plain sponge cake, not a no. sandwich, right? Okay, yeah. So cheesecake is very often in like a graham cracker crust, yeah. but it doesn't always have a thing on top no. of it. However, there is such a thing as an open-faced sandwich. That's true. Right? Yeah. So I'm going to say that cheesecake is a sandwich. That's amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. This is going to break finger happy hour. Everybody's heads is going to explode. No doubt. No, well, every now and then this I'll say amazing. something about the sandwich thing. I did not see answer coming. And, well, neither did I until I got there. Um, <laughs> but the other, uh, you know, a corn dog? Yeah. Is a kind of tamale. God. It is. Be because a tamale is the corn wrapped around the yeah. meat stuff, and then you steam it. A corn dog is, is basically cornbread around a hot dog. It's a tamale on a stick. That's, I cannot argue with that. That is so true. 
this is incredible. Thank but you so I much. tend to, I'm very much a lumper and not a splitter, right? Well, thank you for indulging us with that question. And for just, like, <laughs> thank you for putting up with my outrageous <laughs> answer. Yeah. Um, okay, so to wrap it up, can you just introduce your new book to our listeners? Okay, so my new book is called Provenance. It'll be out September 26th in the U.S. and 28th in the U.K., and it's set in the same universe as uh, the Imperial Raj trilogy, but it's not in Rajai space, and it's not the same characters, and it's a standalone. Uh, and the main character, Ingre, is a young woman who wants very much to impress her powerful mother and gets herself into some serious trouble trying to do that. Hopefully, it'll be fun for everybody to read how she gets herself through her self-imposed trouble. Uh, I can tell that um, I've read... I've almost finished the book and it's fun, it's light and it's hilarious and it's fantastic as you can only expect from one of your books. <laughs> well done. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. It's time for recommendations. Anna, what is your rec this week? So I finally had the time to binge watch the latest season of Game of Thrones, season seven. It was amazing. I loved it to bits. It's probably my favorite season so far of the show. We are left with characters that I love and the things that are happening to them are more interesting to me. We went through a whole season without any sexual attacks of any kind toward a woman. We went through a season where there were no deaths I felt were gratuitous. It really reached the point I wanted it to reach. And the twist, oh my god. So you only have to watch six series to get to this. I saw a clip, and I'm not going to spoil anything for people who have not finished it yet, of the second to last episode, I think. And it really upset me. And I was like, okay, I'm never watching this show ever. What I want to watch is the new show from N.K. Jemisin where they adapt the Broken Kingdoms. How are they going to do that? I don't know. I'm so excited. So what's your recommendation? My recommendation is Defy the Stars by Claudia Gray. It is a book with Robot Pal. Although eventually the Robot Pal becomes Robot. I'm going to make out with you, pal. It's fine. It actually works really well. I was not upset about the romance in this book. It's a wine novel. It's going to have a romance novel. I knew this going in. I was just dubious about it. But the book handles it very well. The book is about Nomi Vadel, who lives on a planet called Genesis. Genesis was a colony world of Earth before they rebelled. So Earth couldn't come and take over their planet, which is not dying like Earth and all its other colonies are. Nomi is part of a group of kids who are planning to go on a suicide run against one of the wormhole gates that connect the colonies. By going on this run, she and her fellow suicide runners can prevent Earth from coming to Genesis for a few weeks to buy her planet some time to rebuild, uh, repair some ships, etc. But during a fight, she finds an old ship that was invented by Earth called the Daedalus. And on it, she finds a mech called Abel. Abel is a pretty special mech because he's not like all the other mechs because they have mechs from A through Z and she doesn't recognize him as one of the models. Abel has been abandoned on the Daedalus for 30 years by himself. Nomi is the first human he's seen since he was left behind. So Nomi realizes that she can use Abel by destroying one of the gates without having to go on the Masada run. That means her and her fellow squad mates don't have to commit suicide. She can get a device, put it in a ship, and make Abel, because he's a mech and has to obey her, fly the ship into the gate to destroy it. And so they go on a whirlwind trip of the galaxy through the gates to find the device that they need and save Genesis. But on the way, she learns way more about the world, and Abel realizes that he has a soul. There are amazing female characters in this. I loved all of them. It ended up being super cute. And there's a lot of interesting thoughts about colonies and war and rebellion and sentience. And also the villain is super creepy. And I highly recommend it if you like robots. Who doesn't? Okay, Anna, tell people what we're going to be discussing next time. 
Our next discussion episode is our August vault episode. Like we said before, we are slowly catching up to our requests and we'll be watching and discussing Alien and Aliens in a double feature about both films. Our vault episodes are made possible by all the space bees that support us over on Patreon. And we appreciate you all very much. Anna, thank you for recording with me. You're very welcome, Renee. I'm very glad to be back. If you have any thoughts, questions, or concerns, send them to us at fangirlhappyhour at gmail.com. You can chat with us on Twitter at fangirlpodcast, and we're also over on Tumblr and Facebook, too. If you want to help support our show, you can become a patron for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com forward slash fangirlhappyhour. Your support helps us keep doing the show and curating great tracks. And remember to stop by Kickstarter and help the book smugglers level up in their endeavor to dominate the world with diverse fiction. Our show art is by Ira and our transcripts are by Susan, which you can read at fangirlhappyhour.com. Our segment break music is by Chucky Beats and Boxcat Games. Drink some water, call your reps, and U.S. Space Bees. Learn who your mayor is and their positions on things you care about. That's right. I'm giving you even more civics homework. Enjoy. Stay calm. Carry on. We can all wait together for the season finale of Game of Thrones in 2019. Thanks for listening, Space Bees. See you next episode. of your pillow. What? A closed in common audit. Audit? Audit? That's a D. <laughs> Renee, make the B sound. And it's the separate... <laughs> okay, I'm not gonna use this word. I'll go with another word. I'm not putting myself that... Look, I have the scissors here. Yeah, cut the crap, Renee. Blech. Blech. Now with a preposition. Thank you. <laughs>